This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. El Dorado, a legendary city of gold in South America, said to contain immeasurable wealth within its walls. Once Europeans arrived in the Americas at the end of the 15th century, there was a non-stop procession of expeditions launched in the hope of finding El Dorado. These explorers hoped to claim its wealth in the name of whichever monarch sponsored the journey and return home rich men. But after over two centuries of fruitless searching, Explorers accepted that El Dorado was no more than a myth. Despite the vast wealth Europeans had extracted from the land and its indigenous people, there probably wasn't a city hidden deep in the jungle full of gold and jewels. But recent discoveries in the Amazon rainforest have revealed the ruins of an advanced civilization that nobody thought could possibly exist. And suddenly, a question is slowly being re-asked. Was El Dorado more than a legend? Could El Dorado actually be real? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast... The best way to support us is to leave a five-star review online. This week concludes our investigation into the Amazon rings, massive earthworks that were recently discovered in the Amazon rainforest. These ring-shaped trenches, referred to as geoglyphs, are the remnants of a sophisticated civilization that academics had thought could never flourish in the Amazon's unforgiving conditions. One of the more remarkable conclusions from this discovery is that the legendary lost city of Z might actually have existed in Brazil's upper Xingu Basin. 
once regarded as little more than the fantasy of English explorer Sir Percy Fawcett, recent excavations have proved that Fawcett's dream was actually based in reality. Today we'll be examining other myths and legends from the Amazon and using what we've learned from the geoglyphs to ascertain whether these stories might contain any elements of truth. We'll start off by investigating the most famous myth that arose during European colonization, El Dorado. Could this mythic city of gold have any basis in truth? Next, we'll go into an, well, eccentric theory that has emerged in recent years. Ancient aliens. Did extraterrestrial visitors help build the mysterious Amazon rings? And do they still remain in the area today? Finally, we'll look into another recently discovered Amazonian culture and its link to a prominent ancient religious site in the Andes Mountains. Did these cultures' influences extend to the societies that built the geoglyphs? In last week's introduction to the Amazon rings, we discussed how their discovery shifted the perception of human civilization in the Amazon. For hundreds of years, the assumption was that the Amazon's challenging conditions prevented advanced societies from developing in the region. However, the discovery of the Amazon rings, massive ring-shaped trenches which researchers call geoglyphs, proved that advanced societies actually lived all throughout the Amazon. The discovery of geoglyph sites along the Amazon River and in Brazil's upper Xingu Basin vindicated the legacies of explorers such as Francisco de Oriana and Percy Fawcett, who had staked their lives and reputations on these societies' existence. With the Amazon's cultural history being rewritten, we wondered if there was any possibility that the legend of El Dorado had any basis in truth. Was one of the geoglyph sites perhaps home to this fabled city of gold? The European conquest of the Americas was largely driven by a lust for wealth. The discovery of gold would allow them to fill their treasuries back home and gain a financial advantage over their rivals. Conquistadors such as Hernán Cortés, who led the Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire in modern-day Mexico during the 1520s, were willing to obtain this wealth by any means necessary. They were handsomely rewarded for their efforts and would pursue even the slightest rumor of gold. The term El Dorado first started to appear in the early 1530s. It was mentioned in Spanish texts such as Fernandez de Oviedo's Historia General y Natural de las Indias. But in these texts, El Dorado wasn't a city. It was a man. As rumor had it, there was a powerful, rich kingdom in the highlands of what is now Colombia. This kingdom's initiation ceremony for a new leader involved covering him head to toe in gold dust before throwing jewels into a lake to appease an underwater god. The Spanish termed this leader El Dorado, or the Golden One. Subjugating wealthy cultures such as the Aztecs, Inca, and Maya had won their conquerors great acclaim back in Europe. Discovering the famed El Dorado's people would surely do the same, and the race was on. In 1536, the governor of the Santa Marta colony in Colombia sent his second-in-command, Gonzalo de Caseda, on an expedition into the country's interior. The immediate area around Santa Marta was proving unsuitable for economic exploitation, 
and the hope was that Caseta could find better opportunities. Although it wasn't explicitly stated, the mission was to find El Dorado. After a grueling eight-month expedition through 400 miles of jungle that saw his forces reduced from 900 men to only 166, Quesada reached the Andean foothills in January 1537. It was there that he encountered the rich kingdom he'd hoped to find. But was it the home of El Dorado? The area was home to the Muisca Confederation, whose civilization was comparable to that of the Aztecs, Inca, and Maya. Like these other cultures, the Muisca possessed large quantities of gold and gems, such as emeralds that the Spanish coveted. Despite his reduced forces, Quesada was able to subdue any opposition from the Muisca, and he eventually reached one of their capitals, Bacata. Quesada defeated the Muisca leader, Tisquesusa, and captured his successor, Sahipa. Although the legendary El Dorado was nowhere to be found, Quesada did discover this mythical leader's origins. The Muisca did anoint their leaders in an elaborate ceremony on the nearby lake Guatavita, which involved covering the new leader in gold dust and having him drop gold and gems into the lake. However, in 1480, another tribe conquered the Muisca and the tradition was ended. Quesada had secured huge quantities of gold and gems, but it wasn't the unlimited bounty that the El Dorado legend had suggested he'd find. While the Muisca possessed great quantities of gold, it was obtained through trade. But this gold still had to come from somewhere. Word began to spread of Quesada's conquest, and rumors began to circulate of a city somewhere in the jungle that possessed wealth that dwarfed anything that had been discovered to that point. The city took on the moniker El Dorado. In 1541, Gonzalo Pizarro, the brother of the conquistador who defeated the Inca Empire, heard of a valley to the east of Quito in Ecuador that was supposedly rich in gold and cinnamon. Pizarro believed this valley was the location of El Dorado and formed an expedition to travel east down the Rio Coca and Rio Napo. Pizarro eventually quit the expedition due to its danger, but ordered his lieutenant, Francisco de Oriana, to continue onward. If you'll recall from last week's episode, this was the expedition in which Oriana discovered the Amazon River and wrote about his encounters with numerous advanced societies. Although his account was regarded at the time as an exaggerated attempt to win favor with King Charles, the discovery of the geoglyphs has led researchers to believe much of it had merit. Despite the skepticism surrounding Oriana's journey, there was still a widespread belief that El Dorado was located somewhere in the Amazon. Expeditions focused on the Orinoco River Basin, which originates near the Venezuelan-Brazilian border and encompasses nearly three-fourths of Venezuela and one-fourth of Colombia. This belief seemed to be corroborated by the memoirs of a man named Juan Martinez, who claimed to have visited a city of incredible wealth called Manoa. Martinez served as the munitions captain on an expedition on the Rio Orinoco in 1530. His negligence of the gunpowder stores led to a massive explosion, and he was sentenced to death for endangering the expedition. Luckily for Martinez, he was popular amongst the men, and they helped him escape that night in a canoe. Shortly after his escape, Martinez said the indigenous people of a city called Manoa captured him. 
Having never encountered a European before, they took him to Manoa and blindfolded him for the approximately two-week journey. He was taken to their emperor, Inga, who had never met a Christian. Inga was intrigued by Martinez and kept him as a guest for seven months. Martinez claimed Inga offered to let him live in Manoa, but he wished to return to his fellow Spaniards. Inga gifted Martinez with vast quantities of gold and jewels, but they were unfortunately stolen from him during his journey home. Upon his return, Martinez hoped to go home to Spain. However, as he awaited passage from Puerto Rico, he became fatally ill. He recorded his memoirs before he died, and they eventually came into the possession of a Spaniard named Antonio de Berrio over 50 years later in 1584. Antonio de Berrio was the nephew of Gonzalo de Quesada, who had subjugated the Muisca people. With Martinez's memoir in hand, Berrio made two expeditions to the Colombian plains on the upper Orinoco between 1584 and 1589, but they didn't yield any useful discoveries. Undeterred, he set off on another series of expeditions in 1591, this time ascending the Orinoco from its mouth on the Venezuelan coast. But he wasn't alone. At the time of Barrio's expedition, Spain was at war with England. Sir Walter Raleigh, who had been in high standing with Queen Elizabeth, found himself in hot water. His failed attempt to establish a colony at Roanoke in Virginia and a secret marriage to the Queen's most trusted lady-in-waiting left him in a perilous position. He was desperate to return to her good graces and promised her the wealth of El Dorado. Raleigh became convinced of El Dorado's existence in 1586 when he captured Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa, the Spanish governor of Patagonia, who also possessed a copy of Juan Martinez's memoirs about his visit to Manoa. When Raleigh read them, he became convinced Manoa was the true name of El Dorado. However, his other commitments to the war effort meant he wasn't able to launch his expedition to search for Manoa until 1595. Raleigh left from the port of Plymouth on February 15, 1595, and headed for Trinidad, located near where the Orinoco empties into the Atlantic Ocean. Raleigh had learned about Barrio's expedition when he sent a smaller force led by his lieutenant, Jacob Widden, in 1594. Raleigh hoped to capture Barrio and found him on Margarita Island off the Venezuelan coast as Barrio waited to resupply his ships. With Barrio as his guide, Raleigh began to laboriously make his way up the Orinoco. He was able to establish good relations with the indigenous Warao and Paymons tribes who admired Raleigh for his dominion over Barrio's Spanish forces. His most crucial ally during his search for Manoa was an elderly chieftain named Topiawari, who told Raleigh about a rich culture living in the mountains. Raleigh was convinced that this was where he would find Manoa. He sent scouts up the Caroni River, and they returned with rocks they believed contained gold ore. Raleigh was encouraged by their discoveries, but with a rainy season on its way and the river growing increasingly dangerous, he decided it was time to return to England, leaving the promise of gold hidden in the jungle mist. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now back to Unexplained Mysteries. After leaving Berrio in Trinidad, Sir Walter Raleigh returned to England in August of 1595. Unfortunately, news of his voyage had gone ahead of him, and it was regarded as a failure in the English court. Queen Elizabeth was unimpressed with the rocks Raleigh brought back, even though they did contain traces of gold. To defend his findings, Raleigh wrote an account of his journey titled The Discovery of the Large, Rich, and Beautiful Empire of Guinea, with a relation to the great and golden city of Manoa, which the Spaniards call El Dorado. The book became incredibly popular and gave Raleigh enough political capital to mount another expedition. Although Raleigh had other matters to attend to, he sent his lieutenant, Lawrence Kemys, back to South America in 1596. This time, Kemys journeyed even further inland, traveling along the Esquibo River, he claimed he had located Manoa on the shores of a lake he called Parame, in what is now Guyana. Kemi's discovery was taken at face value, and although nobody was able to corroborate his discovery, Lake Parame appeared on maps and atlases for the next century. Raleigh hoped to launch another expedition to search for Manoa, but he was imprisoned in the Tower of London after Queen Elizabeth's death in 1603. Her successor, King James, was eager to establish better relations with Spain and imprisoned Raleigh to show his good intentions. Raleigh was eventually freed in 1617 and allowed to resume his search for Manoa, but with strict orders to not attack the Spanish. This turned out to be an order Raleigh's men couldn't obey. They attacked a Spanish force on the Orinoco River, and when Raleigh returned to England empty-handed, the Spanish ambassador demanded that King James punish Raleigh for violating their peace treaty. Left with little choice, King James executed Raleigh on October 29, 1618. Although people would continue to search for Manoa, Sir Walter Raleigh's expeditions were the last major efforts to find this legendary city of gold. As South America and the Amazon became more thoroughly mapped, the belief that there could be an incredibly wealthy city hidden in the jungle began to wane. Any hope that Manoa could exist was snuffed out during Alexander von Humboldt's extensive mapping of Guyana between 1799 and 1804. He concluded that Lake Parame didn't exist, and what Lawrence Kemys had thought was Parame was actually seasonal flooding at the confluence of rivers. But Alexander von Humboldt also helped popularize the belief that the Amazon was incapable of supporting any advanced society 
and he turned out to be incredibly wrong. Perhaps his conclusion that Manoa was nothing more than a fable was misguided as well. Recent discoveries have shown that there is at least a kernel of truth to the El Dorado legend. In 1969, three villagers discovered an ancient clay pot in a cave to the south of Bogota. Inside the pot was a small golden raft depicting the process of El Dorado dropping jewels into a sacred lake. Further research has confirmed that the indigenous people of Lake Guatavita did practice this elaborate ceremony, and they inspired tales of El Dorado until about 1480, when they were conquered by another culture. Interestingly, Juan Martinez's account of the time he allegedly spent in Manoa describes a ceremony Inga's followers would undergo when they pledged loyalty to him. They would be stripped naked and covered in a fine golden dust, after which they would feast together for nearly a week. Could it be that after they were conquered, the people of Lake Guatavita established a new city and carried on their traditions? It's not impossible. Excavations of the Muisca's ancient villages show a remarkable similarity to the layout of villages believed to be bounded by geoglyph sites in the Amazon. Complicating matters is that during Alexander von Humboldt's journey through South America, he discovered that Juan Martinez's deathbed memoir about Manoa might be little more than a fable. Humboldt believed the account was written by a man named Juan Martín de Albujar, who was captured by the Carib people on the Lower Orinoco in 1570. The whole thing might be a hoax. And yet... That's what people said about Francisco de Oriana's account of his journey along the Amazon River until the geoglyphs were discovered. Could it be that Martinez, or Albujar, really did spend some time in a highly developed city in the Amazon? Perhaps the reason nobody had been able to find it since then was that Martinez unwittingly transmitted deadly diseases that wiped out Inga and his people. With so many new discoveries being made every day about the people who lived in the Amazon, it's hard to rule anything out. With new geoglyph sites being consistently discovered, we may yet find evidence that one of them was the fabled Manoa. Researchers have uncovered ceremonial ceramics at some of the geoglyphs. Perhaps one of these mysterious earthen rings could have been where Inga conducted his elaborate ceremonial feasts with his new followers. Finding out exactly what happened during ceremonies within the geoglyphs is still a challenge scientists are trying to decipher. Each new discovery about the geoglyphs brings even more questions and even more outlandish theories. Could it be that one of the functions of the geoglyphs was communication with ancient aliens? With experts still making discoveries about the Amazon geoglyphs and the culture that built them, Some people have noted similarities to another mysterious site, Stonehenge. Dr. Jennifer Watling, a researcher at the Museum of Archaeology and Ethnography in Sao Paulo, made a connection between Stonehenge and the Amazon geoglyphs when she was studying for a PhD at the University of Exeter in England. She felt the geoglyphs resembled Neolithic causewayed enclosures found at Stonehenge in Wiltshire. In a 2017 article for the UK magazine, The Daily Telegraph, Watling described the similarity. Quote, It's interesting to note that the format of the geoglyphs, with an outer ditch and inner wall enclosure, are what classically describe henge sites. The earliest phases at Stonehenge consisted of a similarly laid out enclosure. End quote. 
experts still aren't sure how Stonehenge's monolithic rock slabs were transported from as far away as Wales, 140 miles southwest. Some of the more wild theories about Stonehenge and its purpose postulate that it was built with the help of aliens, who also helped build the Egyptian pyramids, the massive stoneheads on Easter Island, and other ancient monuments. Could it be that they had a hand in the geoglyphs as well? In his 1986 book, Chariots of the Gods, author Eric von Daniken hypothesizes that aliens bestowed technology upon the world's ancient societies, who subsequently viewed the aliens as gods. One of the examples he uses to support this theory is the design on the sarcophagus lid used to entomb the Mayan ruler, Pakal the Great, who ruled over the city of Palenque from 615 to 683 AD. Danikin finds similarities between Pakal's pose on the lid and that of the Mercury mission astronauts in the 1960s. Quote, In the center of that frame is a man sitting, bending forward. He has a mask on his nose, he uses his two hands to manipulate some controls, and the heel of his left foot is on a kind of pedal with different adjustments. The rear portion is separated from him, he is sitting on a complicated chair, and outside of this whole frame, you see a little flame like an exhaust." Experts are justifiably skeptical on whether this lid actually depicts Pakal blasting off into space. The Mayan text that accompany the lid describes the image as a portrait of Pakal within the world tree of Mayan mythology. However, this has not diminished some people's belief that there is an alien presence in the Amazon. On the night of October 11, 1492, around 10 p.m., Christopher Columbus wrote in his log about an encounter with a strange glow over the ocean, quote, appearing like the light of a wax candle moving up and down, which some thought an indication of land, end quote. However, they were still a fair ways off from land, which wouldn't be sighted until nearly four hours later. There are several theories for what these lights could have been, such as canoes, fires on the distant shore, or even just a trick of Columbus's imagination. In 1935, naturalist Lionel Rutledge Crochet suggested that Columbus saw light emanating from luminous worms, commonly known as fireworms, who live in the shallow coastal areas off of Southern California, Puerto Rico, Belize, Bermuda, and British Columbia. During their mating dance before the twice-monthly quarter moon, fireworms swim in a circular pattern. This movement could certainly account for the strange movement Columbus observed. But could it be that the lights Columbus saw came from an alien spaceship? Many UFO researchers believe the Amazon rainforest is an ideal location for aliens to form a base of operations. Its dense foliage and remote location would be an ideal place to observe humans without being detected. Could the geoglyphs represent bases of operations for their covert research? The most compelling case for the presence of aliens in the Amazon came in 1977, when the Brazilian government investigated strange reports from the city of Colares, located on the northwestern Brazilian coast near the mouth of the Amazon River. These reports concerned strange light orbs in the sky that reportedly caused burns and sucked the blood from over 400 people. The residents of Colares dubbed them the Chupa Chupa, 
meaning sucker sucker. The hysteria surrounding the attacks grew so powerful that Calaris Mayer requested help from the Brazilian Air Force. Ninety days later, the Air Force launched Operaso Prato, or Operation Saucer, under the command of Captain Urange Bolivar Suarez Noriega de Holanda Lima. What separated the reports coming out of Calaris from other UFO sightings in the region was the scope and nature of these attacks. These weren't just fanciful accounts. The people reporting the sightings had literal scars to show from their encounters. Dr. Walade Sassim Carvalho, who worked in a healthcare unit in Colaris during Operation Saucer, wrote in a report that, quote, all of them had suffered lesions to the face or thoracic area. The lesions, looking like radiation injuries, began with intense reddening of the skin in the affected area. Later, the hair would fall out and the skin would turn black. There was no pain, only a slight warmth. One also noticed small puncture marks in the skin. The victims were men and women of varying ages without any pattern. End quote. Over the course of their four-month investigation, the Brazilian military compiled a 2,000-page report that also featured over 500 photographs and 16 hours of film of the phenomenon. It was kept classified until 2004, when several pages containing photographs and drawings were released. The photographs show bright, cylindrical lights, while the drawings show similar-looking objects as described by the victims. Despite this evidence, the operation never concluded that UFOs or any extraterrestrials were behind the sightings and injuries. But Dr. Cavallo claims she was ordered to lie to her patients about their injuries and tell them they suffered hallucinations. In 1997, 20 years after Operation Saucer, Captain Olanda gave an interview to UFO enthusiasts Adamar Jose Havard and Marco Antonio Petit. He described eyewitness accounts of alien abductions and the terror his men endured during the investigation. But there was no chance for Captain Olanda to elaborate on his claims. Four months after his interview, Captain Olanda was found dead from an apparent suicide. The truth of what happened during Operaso Prato remains murky. After World War II, American soldiers were exposed to dangerous amounts of radiation during military tests, which is what sparked an outburst of UFO and alien theories. It's possible the Brazilian military was conducting tests off the coast, and the residents of Colaris were unfortunately exposed to health hazards. If that were the case, the government would probably prefer its citizens believe in aliens rather than suspect their leaders are putting them in harm's way. Although the Brazilian government doesn't acknowledge the existence of aliens in any way, shape, or form, UFO sightings continue to be made in the Amazon, usually consisting of bright, flashing lights or mysterious glowing orbs in the night sky. But in October 2011, something more convincing than indistinct objects in the sky was caught on film. A living, breathing alien. According to paranormal writer Michael Cohen, the video was taken by two British tourists in the Manaus region of the Brazilian Amazon, not far from Colaris. It focuses on a group of young children, but in the background, there is a strange glowing light that seems to hover in the air and change from blue to white before disappearing. 
a few feet from this light is what appears to be an alien, standing in profile, hidden amongst the trees. In an article published by the English tabloid The Sun, Cohen claimed, quote, This is highly compelling footage that will be hard to discredit, end quote. If real, this footage could be proof that aliens do in fact lurk deep within the Amazon rainforest, perhaps using geoglyph sites as bases. However, it must be said that Michael Cohen has a track record of fabricating hoaxes and promoting hoaxed material. His credibility and the video's authenticity is dubious at best. Considering that the alien doesn't move at all during the 44-second video, it's likely a prop or jungle foliage. The strange light isn't as easily explained, although it could be a pulsing flashlight or lantern. Although it is in all likelihood a hoax, without an official explanation or admission, there is the possibility, albeit very small, that the video is a genuine extraterrestrial encounter. Well, it's fairly easy to fake UFO extraterrestrial evidence. A few years after Michael Cohen's video, there was a discovery of something strange in the Amazon that was definitely not faked. In 2016, in a remote area of the rainforest in the Brazilian state of Rondônia, a UFO hunter came across a strange image on Google Earth that appears to be four white orbs sticking out of the dense canopy. One of the orbs is perfectly aligned with a circular structure on the forest floor, leading some UFO enthusiasts to believe it's a landing pad. Hondonia is just to the east of the state of Acre, where the first geoglyphs were discovered in the late 1970s. Could it be that this mysterious circular object is an undiscovered geoglyph? Did they serve as landing pads for alien spaceships? Considering this mysterious object's location, it's easy to see why some people could believe this. It's also possible that the mysterious structures are a base for an illegal logging site or even a drug manufacturing lab. But another UFO sighting made about a year later does raise the tantalizing possibility that this strange Google Earth image is genuine evidence of an extraterrestrial presence. In January 2018, a YouTube UFO channel called Secure Team 10 released a video from Santos, Brazil, of lights from a UFO in the night sky. The lights move laterally in unison from left to right before jetting off into the distance. And what makes this particular video notable is that the lights from this supposed UFO are an exact match of the objects seen in the Google Earth image in Hondonia. But as with almost every UFO sighting, this one comes with a caveat. Both the initial discovery of the orbs in Hondonia and the video of the UFO in Santos were posted on the Secure Team 10 YouTube page. It could be that the Santos sighting was manufactured to match the Google Earth images in Hondonia, thereby giving the theory that the orbs are alien in nature more credibility. Whether or not these sightings are genuine, the mere suggestion that the geoglyphs could serve as landing pads or some sort of base for extraterrestrial vessels shows just how little we know about the culture that built these ring-shaped structures. But the key to understanding more about the mysterious geoglyph culture might lie with another recently discovered Amazonian civilization. Like the geoglyph builders, 
this society was also obsessed with geometric patterns. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, back to our story. In 2010, archaeologist Carino Oliveira made a major discovery regarding ancient Amazonian religious practices. In the western Amazonian city of Jaén, Peru, there's a large hill the locals refer to as Monte Grande, meaning Big Hill. Spanning more than two acres at its base and rising five stories high, It was regarded as little more than a geographical oddity amongst the flat fields and rice paddies. But archaeologists visiting the region realized Monte Grande's steep sides, round shape, and lack of surrounding hills meant it could be some sort of burial mound. In 2010, archaeologist Carino Oliveira began excavations at Monte Grande. He quickly uncovered pottery from a span of over 1,000 years hiding just below the surface. As Oliveira dug past a layer of ceramics, he began uncovering sections of a long, nine-foot-tall, semicircular wall coated in beige plaster. A staircase made of boulders and packed earth wound its way up to the wall. Later excavation sessions in 2012 and 2016 also uncovered a wide platform on the mound's eastern side, which granted an incredible view of the sunrise. Judging by the structure's depth and form and lack of ceramics, Oliveira dated it at over 3,000 years old. Something this complex could have only been built by an organized, stratified society with hierarchies of workers and a reliable food supply. This massive pyramid was the biggest, oldest structure that had ever been excavated in the Peruvian Amazon. In an article for Archaeology magazine, Oliveira acknowledged what this structure meant for understanding ancient Amazonian societies. Quote, It showed that complex worship, monumental architecture, and fixed societies had spread to the Amazon centuries earlier than once believed. The structure is saying, quote, We're here. We live in a settled society. End quote. Over the course of his excavations at Monte Grande, Oliveira has identified that the pyramid went through at least eight different building phases, beginning around 1000 BC and continuing for the next millennium. The pyramid is notable for a spiral-shaped arrangement of rocks at its summit about 40 feet in diameter. This spiral winds its way up and around the outside of the pyramid, almost like a snake. 
Upon reaching the top, it coils in on itself, creating a shallow depression. His initial observation of the spiral was that it bore a resemblance to the path of heavenly bodies. The spiral's tip also ends where the sun rises from behind a faraway hill at certain parts of the year. Could it be some sort of giant astronomical instrument? If so, what was its purpose? Within this depression, Oliveira discovered ash remains he believes to be evidence of ritual fires. Further digging in 2016 revealed a thick layer of stones beneath the ash that Oliveira believes covers a tomb deep within the mound's center. This depression was most likely some sort of religious altar, but the spiral shape leading up to the altar could be an indication of this culture's religious practices. The use of psychotropic drugs such as vilca seeds, the San Pedro cactus, and the ayahuasca vine is often used in Amazonian religious rituals. While these drugs will produce a wide range of hallucinations, a common experience is seen flashing lights in the shape of a spiral. The stone spiral at Monte Grande could be a physical representation of their spiritual experiences. Here's a quote from anthropologist Christian Ratch from the 1996 Yearbook for Ethnomedicine and the Study of Consciousness that provides a picture for the experience of taking the Vilca seed. Quote, After about five minutes, I grew aware of swirling, dancing phosphines in my visual field. The rapidly shifting array of patterns transformed itself into a chaotic current of spermatozoa, these teemed and writhed in all directions at once, giving the sensation that they were on a mission to fertilize the entire cosmos. End quote. In his article, Ratch references the swirling stone carvings found at a site called Chavin de Huantar in the northern Andes, noting the similarity between his Vilca-induced hallucinations and the, quote, panorama of flowing designs, the exact patterns depicted in the nimbus surrounding the head of the Chavin deity, end quote. Located about 300 miles south of the Monte Grande site, Chavin de Huantar was a religious site that would draw pilgrims from all over the Andes and beyond. Its extensive tunnel network, high towers, and complex stone carvings still survive today, and give a good picture of the religious practices held there at its peak of cultural significance around 1000 BC, the same time the pyramid at Monte Grande was built. Archaeologists have uncovered ancient drug paraphernalia at Chavin de Huantar, such as mortar grinders for mashing vilca seeds and the snuff spoons for snorting the resulting powder. Researchers have determined that the use of hallucinogenic drugs was a major facet of the religious practices conducted there. So if the spiral at Monte Grande was tied to the religious ceremonies practiced at Chavin de Huantar, is it possible the people who built the spiral moved from the Andes into the Amazon to continue the culture they had established there? The society at Monte Grande seems to have been uniquely Amazonian. About 40 miles north at Huayarco, Yale doctoral fellow Ryan Clasby discovered a settlement that was occupied for over 800 years during the same period when the pyramid was built. This settlement had terraced earthworks, civic buildings, and remains of goods obtained through extensive trade networks. 
The homes were spaced out along the river in Amazonian fashion, rather than in the corral-like circles of settlements in the Andes. These were people native to the region, not migrants from another culture. The people who built Monte Grande also probably didn't get their religious beliefs from the culture at Chavin de Huantar. They helped create it. The Vilca seed is a lowland plant that could only have been imported to the Andes Mountains. And archaeologists at Chavin de Huantar have also discovered stone bowls decorated with Amazonian fish and snake motifs that are nearly identical to similar artifacts discovered at Monte Grande. These goods were most likely delivered from the people at Monte Grande and other Amazonian cultures via the Marañón River, which flows in a direct line from Chavin de Huantar to Monte Grande. These two cultures are clearly linked, with one affecting the other. With new discoveries being made every day, researchers are realizing the scope of the cultures that grew from exchanges between Amazonian and Andean societies. At Santa Ana La Florida in Ecuador, about 100 miles north of Monte Grande, archaeologist Francisco Valdez uncovered a series of spirals similar to the larger one at Monte Grande. His excavations have uncovered a village containing about 20 stone circles, reaching up to 40 feet in diameter, along with a sunken plaza and a wide ceremonial platform overlooking the confluence of rushing rivers. The site is astoundingly old, with radiocarbon tests dating it as far back as 3300 BC. That would make it nearly as old as a Peruvian site called Caral, which is referred to as the oldest known city in the Americas. Valdez believes the site at Santa Ana La Florida served as a civic or ceremonial purpose where people from across the region could gather for rituals. It's unknown just how much these cultures all shared in common, but judging from the spirals at Santa Ana, La Florida, and Monte Grande, and the carvings at Chavin de Huantar, they were all united by their religious practices. It's understandable why hallucinogens played such a major part in these cultures. Taking hallucinogenic drugs, like ayahuasca, often leads to introspective experiences that lead to a sense of greater understanding of self and the surrounding world. With a land affected by disease, earthquakes, and violent weather resulting from El Nino, these drugs gave them a way to wrap their heads around phenomena that was seemingly beyond understanding. While these religious practices created a rich cultural tradition, they also had a dark side. About a mile from Monte Grande, there is an even bigger and possibly older mound named San Isidro, which Carino Oliveira excavated in 2010 and 2012. During excavations, Oliveira discovered the remains of 22 children and infants that were buried over the span of several centuries during the first millennium BC. It's possible that San Isidro was a place parents took their sick children to be cured, but it's more likely they were sacrificed. Olivera discovered the decapitated bodies of a newborn infant and its mother. There was the body of another boy, aged around six, who was buried with guinea pigs, river crabs, and had a shell necklace, typical sacrificial offerings. Other bones from San Isidro show signs of trauma and deformation stemming from sacrificial rituals. A few feet away from these burials, Olivera discovered the remains of 
what was most likely the site's healer or priest, whose death was dated to around 2,800 years ago. His face was deliberately turned to the east in the direction of the sunrise. He was adorned with over 180 snail shells, whose shapes evoked the same spiral pattern at Monte Grande and Santa Ana La Florida. Fittingly, he was given the nickname the Lord of Snails. The Lord of Snails was buried with a high volume of ceramics, which would indicate a prominent position in the community. At the time of his death, ceramics were being introduced in the region and were revolutionizing how people could carry and store food. For the Lord of Snails to be bestowed with so many ceramics, he would have to be very important indeed. As of yet, there have been no discoveries made that can connect the Lord of Snails culture to the societies who built the geoglyphs. But we do know that the geoglyph cultures did participate in trade. Remember the giant roads Michael Heckenberger and the Quikuro people discovered that linked settlements across the Xingu Basin in Brazil. With more geoglyph sites being discovered, we may yet uncover evidence of interactions between the cultures. It's entirely possible that these civilizations traded with each other and could have common influences. Although none of the geoglyphs are spiral-shaped, their unique geometric patterns could indicate similar religious beliefs and cultural practices. It is astounding to think about how much our perception of Amazonian culture has changed in the span of a few decades. For hundreds of years, Western people have assumed that there was no way any sort of organized society could develop in the Amazon. But now we know there's a possibility that this vast region was connected not just by trade, but possibly by shared societal values. Although there was probably never a city of gold, there were incredibly organized societies, and they definitely didn't need the help of aliens to develop themselves. For thousands of years, Amazonian civilization were all interconnected. The question now is to what extent? Hopefully, as discoveries continue to be made, we can get a clearer picture of the cultures that lived in the Amazon. Who knows? Maybe we'll find a city of unimaginable wealth or evidence of an ancient extraterrestrial starship. Whatever lies deep within the Amazon, we do know this. Sophisticated societies with deep traditions and thriving cultures lived there. The more we discover, the more we can honor their legacies and allow them to take their rightful place in history. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Everyone always asks how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. 
It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Alex Benedin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 